dark secret place. This radioactivity is coming from Brian Suits on KFI. I would bomb the shit out of him. Dark secret place with Brian Suits on KFI. KFI AM 640 more stimulating talk. It is a dark secret place. Your weekly dive into the dark world of espionage, war, war technology, counter strikes. And in, in the case of uh, Gaza today, um, uh, retaliation, retaliation and retaliation. Uh, all of it. We'll uh, get to all of it in tonight's show. Next hour. Uh, I'll I'll continue what I was talking with Bill Handel about on Thursday, which is uh, the the gap in knowledge. Uh, m- what most people think NATO is for, and the real reason NATO was formed, and why it continues to exist even after the Soviet Union collapse. So we'll get into that um, next hour as well as uh, what is happening in Gaza uh, uh, right now. It, it's been going on now for about twenty four hours. The Israeli Air Force saying. The largest retaliatory strikes by the Israeli Air Force since uh, 2014. So huge, huge airstrikes happening in Gaza. Uh, and what prompted that and some audio. I'll play you uh, some of that. Well, uh, and, and let, let me just uh, start by saying uh, I'm really going to miss Monique Marvez. She's a really good friend. She's uh, she's a, a good colleague, a good broadcaster. And uh, for, for years she's been uh, here at 8 o'clock. I'm excited about starting at 8 o'clock, starting next week. Dark Secret Place is going to go from 8 to 11, 8 p.m. to 11. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm pumped about that. This is the, you know, it's an a opportunity for a larger audience. Uh, and uh, obviously, one of the great things about part of the reason I do this show live at this time is because so many of the places that we look at every single week, um, news is happening on Sunday morning or, or Sunday afternoon uh, on the other side of the world. And so uh, that's why it's always timely to be on now. Um, and then uh, Super Hyper Local Sunday will uh, m- retain itself. It'll, it'll stay there at 8 p.m. But uh, anyway, I'll, I'll miss Monique. She's, a, she's a, a, a terrific broadcaster, a hilarious person, a great comedian. Uh, if you ever ch- get a chance to see her, by the way, uh, check, check her out on Netflix. Go see her in person. Uh, we we uh, love her to death. She's uh, hilarious. Here. Yeah, and and that's why it's been fun too. It's you know because of we're on the air and the FCC rules and all that. She's one of those people that uh, you know if if only if only you know you could hear she and I talking off air that would be a that would be a fun show. But it we, certainly would. we'd be fired a few a few seconds later. So uh, so there you go. But anyway, yeah, check her out. Uh, she's in Hollywood all the time. She's <clears throat> she's just uh, just hilarious. So. Uh, well, you know, it's not hilarious is being right all the time. And I would challenge all of you, uh, go back to uh, July of 2016. And I, I don't like doing victory laps on stuff like this, but you'll recall that since 2015, I have been warning anyone who would listen about Russian interference with the American election process. And this is well before... Election Day. Um, I I never said because I knew they were not going to. There was never going to be interference with actual voting, right? That's not an influence operation. That's that's a, a direct active measure, and the Russians were not prepared to do that. But they were what they were prepared to do um, was affect uh, voter decisions uh, by sabotaging uh, uh, the the information operations and the and the public affairs, specifically the Democratic Party. And we have to go back to 2015 so that I can remind all of you uh, for the zillionth time, WikiLeaks is a Soviet, Soviet, is a Russian operation, okay? Just stop debating me on that. It just is. WikiLeaks has never released an embarrassing email chain with Putin and Medvedev uh, or or Putin and uh, Justin Trudeau or whatever, WikiLeaks does not embarrass Russia because WikiLeaks is Russia. Okay, full stop. Um, Thing two, anything that affected the Democratic Party in 2015, 2016 was a uh, Russian operation. And you, if you are Republican, like like I am, um, uh, and you actually believe the Constitution, you should have been like I was in July of 2016. And again, like I said, you go back in the archives of the dark secret place. And you listen to me. Um, you listen to the, the, the four Saturdays in July of 2016 
And I said it four weeks in a row that an act of war was being perpetrated on the United States. And if Republicans don't stand up and defend this, then who do you expect to, to defend us? The reason being the Democratic National Committee is a private organization. The Republican National Committee is a private organization. The, the frickin' Green Party and the Libertarians are private organizations that stand up their own candidates for public elections, okay? They have a right to privacy and to do their own business. The Republicans have a right to privacy and to do their own business. And if the, if the higher-ups in the Republican Party want to get together and scheme and shut somebody out of, of a race, that's their right because they're elected to those positions by that private organization called the Republican National Committee. In the case of the Democratic National Committee, it was crystal clear to absolutely anybody with a brain that they were terrified of Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders had never been a Democrat. He was an independent, and he was a crazy man. He still is a crazy man. And he terrified the crap out of Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who was Hillary Clinton's campaign manager in 2008. Didn't work out so hot for her. <clears throat> John Podesta was, was next up in 2016 as Hillary's campaign manager. And they conspired to suppress Bernie Sanders' candidacy. It was clear because he was sucking the oxygen out of the race. He was supposed to get out of the way so Hillary could get the nomination and just cruise into the White House. That, that is the right of the Democratic National Committee. They have the right to do that, to, to decide who their candidate's going to be. Well, when the emails were released, it was so targeted and so obvious and so clear that, it was, that the release was, as a, uh, was to, in furtherance of the purpose of poleaxing and sabotaging Hillary Clinton's candidacy. Because if there's one person on the face of the earth that Vladimir Putin dislikes right now, and back in 2016, it was Hillary Clinton. It was Hillary Rodham Clinton and her husband. He was going to do whatever it takes, including risking exposure and possibly sparking an international incident between the United States and Russia. It was a, it was a risk well taken because Barack Obama knew it was going on, did nothing about it because they thought Hillary was such a strong candidate that there was no way that she could lose. And so they knew that the Russian military intelligence service, the GRU, was interfering, that the GRU released those emails. The emails were so embarrassing to Debbie Wasserman Schultz, she had to resign. She had to resign as chairman of an American political party. Okay, so now just flip the parties around. And please tell me you would be absolutely going ape feces if this happened to Republicans. Because Putin would do that like you take a piss, okay? It's just that Hillary Clinton happened to be a Democrat. If he decided to release what he's hacked out of the Republicans, he, he could have done that too. So that's the background. That's been going for two years. When we come back, De Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein uh, on Friday announcing these indictments. We'll get to that that and more. It is a dark secret place. Brian Suits in here until midnight. KFI AM640. More stimulating talk. KFI AM640. More stimulating talk. It is a dark secret place. Brian Suits in here until Midnight and Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein announcing 12 indictments. And this is unlike last year when there were 13 indictments of uh, individuals with names. They were not attributed to the Russian government. There was no state attribution to them. Um, what's different about uh, these indictments is that the Deputy Attorney General specified who these guys worked for, uh, their physical addresses in Moscow, their ranks. Uh, et cetera, what their mission was, and that they were uh, mandated by the the Russian GRU, which is the uh, the military intelligence directorate of the general uh, general staff of the Russian Ministry of Defense. This is this is like uh, if the Joint Chiefs of Staff had a specific intelligence agency, not the DIA. The Defense Intelligence Agency actually is comprised of everybody. All the services put people in there, and and they have a very broad mission. <clears throat> the the GRU works specifically for the the uh, the general staff of of the Russian military, and they do uh, covert missions to and and they even say on their own website. Basically, they set conditions favorable for uh, future Russian conflict. And this in this realm that we're living in in 2018, 
That means information operations. It means disinformation operations. It means espionage on the industrial scale out at Palmdale in Monrovia. Um, it means in, individual uh, espionage inside uniformed services of, of potential threat nations like the United States or Britain or whatever. So the GRU's mission is to steal everything from everybody. They even, they even steal stuff from China. When the Chinese steal stuff uh, here in Southern California, the Russians steal it from them. Uh, in fact, the Russians are so good that there are some Chinese here in Southern California who think they're actually spying for China, but they're not. They're actually giving stuff to the Russians. That's how good the Russians are. Why aren't they this good? They've been around since 1815. This, they predate the Soviet Union. Uh, military intelligence it was taken seriously by the Russians hundreds of years ago. The Poles took it seriously. The Russians took it seriously. The British didn't take it formally seriously until a little over 100 years ago. The United States, prior to World War II, we weren't taking it seriously. It was, it was said by, uh, who said it? Henry Cabot Lodge and, and the American Secretary of State, uh, Cordell Hall, said, gentlemen, don't read other gentlemen's letters. That was the official American idea about espionage. So it's, it's just not done. The Russians understood that an ounce of espionage could save you a pound of infantry. And, and they have to this date, okay? So here is Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein uh, naming names. Office. The indictment charges 12 Russian military officers by name for conspiring to interfere with the 2016 presidential election. 11 of the defendants are charged with conspiring to hack into computers, steal documents, and release those documents with the intent to interfere in the election. So you've heard of like Guccifer 2.0 and some of the other hacking groups, and, and they successfully had a lot of American media thinking that Guccifer 2.0 was actually a guy, a guy in the basement of his mommy's apartment in Hungary. And it, it never was. It was not. It was ludicrous to even believe that. It was a, a team of people working out of Moscow and, and other uh, facilities, specifically in Russia, from university campuses uh, to GRU headquarters, who were all doing this. But it's not like it took a genius to spearfish John Podesta, the head of Hillary's campaign. They sent him a phony email that looked like Google asking him to reset his password. But if he had looked closely, he would have seen that it said, uh, like, uh, cut summer service at Google.com or Google.ru.com or whatever. But he didn't look closely. And he clicked on the link, and it said, um, enter your username, now your old password. Now click here to set a new password. And with that, they broke into John Podesta's email. It was that simple. 14-year-olds are doing this here in America. So it wasn't like it required one of, one of the world's leading intelligence, foreign intelligence agencies, GRU. But um, so anyway, just to, to reset what the GRU is, you know, we, you, you go through the Cold War. You grew up in the Cold War. You watch 007. 007 was always fighting the KGB, you know, and we were always, we had in mind that the KGB were the bad guys and the FX show, the Americans, I, th I think they worked for the KGB. The reality is <clears throat> the KGB throughout, uh, throughout its various iterations in the Soviet Union was overwhelmingly 99% a internal spy agency. The purpose of the KGB was to maintain order and control um, so that the communist party uh, would not have any internal threats. The KGB also spied inside the Communist Party. The KGB had spies in the Army. KGB had uh, spies in the Navy. Uh, KGB had spies uh, in the GRU. Uh, the KGB was the premier organization inside the Soviet Union. Now, anybody who wanted to get ahead, who wanted to get a better apartment, who wanted to skip the line for a car or whatever, they, they went into the KGB, like Vladimir Putin. But the military had a, a, a specific mandate to get intelligence from future threats or foes that would help the Soviet Union win the war. And so they, they did not spend any time spying internally. The GRU was dozens of thousands of agents. The GRU has a uniform component of, of about 20,000 special forces called Spetsnaz. Uh, they could dispatch these guys to do overseas assassinations, overseas reconnaissance. Um, throughout the Cold War, if you saw Russians, if you saw Soviet athletes in any of the rowing events, uh, the canoeing, the stand-up rowing, the crew events, those were GRU. They were world-class athletes, but they were GRU. 
that they were all encompassing. And in reality, the residents, the illegals that, that, that were rolled up about eight years ago in Seattle, San Francisco, Manhattan, and all that, they were GRU. They were not KGB. KGB has a very small overseas uh, intelligence function called the SVR, uh, but they're, they're nowhere the size of GRU. GRU interferes with elections. It's, it's one of the things that they've, that they've been doing for about 10 years. They're way ahead of us on this. Hey, hey Brian, I got a question for you. Uh, Rosenstein named names, and they're, so I'm thinking these leaders of the Russian intelligence would know they were going to get caught if if these guys are able to name names they didn't just pick them out of a hat didn't they I no mean, they, they 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 coordinated with the cia they know these guys they know their home addresses in moscow they know exactly where they live right no i know but they must have evidence tying them to them in order to indict them and it's like wouldn't these guys know that they're going to get caught and and they don't care obviously yeah they mission accomplished uh right. hillary didn't win uh, so yeah these guys um and they don't care that how it looks they don't care because they know they're not going to be extradited not a bit of it. They're never visiting the U.S. Um, but, and if they have relatives here that are uh, naturalized, they don't have to worry about that. Um, but but just before all of you hit send on your, why do you hate Trump, you Hillary sucking piece of crap? How come you're not? Why are you even on KFI? Let me point out to you that the mission in 2016 was to prevent Hillary from being elected. That was it. wasn't to get Trump elected. It was to prevent Hillary from being elected. And there's a very simple reason for that. But I'll tell you this: um, if if a candidate ever ran a more incompetent campaign than Hillary Clinton in 2016, I'm unaware of it. If somebody with such a clear path to the White House um, could f it up so badly, there's a case you could be <laughs> that could be made that Hillary Clinton was on the GRU payroll. Because she did a horrible job. She did half their job for them. Her campaign slogan was basically, vote for me or go F yourself. That was her campaign slogan. She didn't visit Wisconsin, because why? Well, it was liberal. It was, she was going to win it. Why even visit? Well, they had a Republican governor. And it was full of deplorables. Oh, yeah. And Trump visited. Guess what? He carried Wisconsin. If, 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 if she hired a GRU guy to be her campaign manager, it could, he could not have done a better job than what she did in losing that election. But the GRU sure helped. Uh, so why do they hate her? Why does Putin hate Hillary? I'll tell you right after this, because you probably don't know this story either. So who are the GRU? Why did they do this? Why Why am I just so damn right from 2016? That and more coming up. It's the Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits in here until 10 p.m. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. Forty more stimulating talk. It is the dark secret place. Brian suits in here until midnight next hour. Israel hammering Gaza, and uh, what exactly is NATO for? And is it possible to have a delinquent payment to NATO? Could you be behind on rent for Belgium? We'll uh, we'll talk about that. The real the real reason NATO exists, and you're you're not supposed to know this. You weren't taught this in high school. Most of our elected officials don't know this, but there's a real reason NATO exists. We'll uh, we'll get to it. Well, um, all right. So we we have the WHO uh, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, unlike last year, naming uh, the twelve Russian indictees as government agents, as Russian g- government agents, employees of the GRU, the Russian Main Intelligence Directorate of the uh, the General Staff, the Ministry of Defense. Um, their ranks, their offices, you know, the 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 whole deal, just laying it on the table, these 12 guys. Uh, and so I've explained who the GRU are. Why did Putin aim the GRU at Hillary Clinton? Why not that couple from the Americans or or, or whatever? Well, because this is this was a, a a big mission that required a lot of effort to make it look small, to make it look like just another, WikiLeaks, just another, um, uh, what's his name? I, I forgot. Brad, uh, Brandy, uh, Bradley Manning. Well, who's Bradley Manning now? What's his, what's his new name? Uh, Chelsea. Oh, oh, Chelsea Manning. Uh, that, that was the goal. They, they looked at that and, and WikiLeaks was so successful at sowing discontent 
about the Iraq war and Afghanistan and, and the whole thing <clears throat> that they, they realized, well, you know, look, look at how we can weaponize uh, leaked information, even if we have to make up the leaked information, but we don't have to make up the, le the leaked information if we can access it. And the mission was do whatever you got to do to prevent that woman, that Clinton woman from becoming president. And, and like I say, in, in your lifetime, ask yourself, have you ever seen a candidate who, who in real terms had such a clear path to the white house as Hillary Clinton, um, even the Republican, the early Republican uh, challengers didn't even seem serious because uh, it was she was such a slam dunk in all the polling. And it said that's why when Trump got in there he and began energizing the Republican primaries, it shocked Marco Rubio, little Marco and Lion Ted and, and the whole who knew Ted Cruz's dad assassinated Kennedy. I mean, I didn't know that. And uh, and and that was a wild card. That was that was just a bonus. The mission was to prevent Hillary Clinton from being elected. And why is that? Well, for a couple reasons. This you must know about Vladimir Putin. The Soviet Union worked out pretty damn good for him. Poor kid in Leningrad. Leningrad was savaged by the Germans in World War II. The place was devastated. He uh, he grows up. Um, his potential is seen by his high school teachers. He goes to Leningrad State University. Um, he is recruited into the KGB. He's a, he's a sharp guy. He's not that great of a KGB agent. They don't. He's not going undercover at the tractor transmission plant to root out spies. Uh, he he winds up learning German and then being assigned to East Germany to Leipzig, where he is uh, there exploiting and recruiting foreign university students to work as KGB. Uh, operatives when they return back to their countries in Africa and Asia and all that. So he he learned how to uh, develop and groom uh, sources. Um, and so <clears throat> he he had one of the best lives you can have in, in the old Soviet Union. As a KGB officer, he had good pay. He had his choice of apartments. He jumped the line for a car, the whole thing. When the Soviet Union dissolved, collapsed, he saw it as a disaster. He's on the record. And he wasn't being ironic when he said this, but he said that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest disaster of the 20th, 20th century. Pardon me, the 21st century. I mean, just keep in mind, he, you have World War II to choose from. He says collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest tragedy of the 21st century. Uh, or I guess, yeah, 20th century. 20th century right? yeah, yeah. I was, right, yeah. Um, is it still there, maybe? Yeah, that, that, that was it. And, and he wasn't, like I say, he wasn't being ironic. He was being truthful. And then he watched in the 80s, pardon me, in the 90s, when this president, Bill Clinton, um, supervised the slow backwards retreat of the former Soviet army out of Eastern Europe, the destruction of the Warsaw Pact, and then one by one, the Warsaw Pact appeals and, uh, and joins NATO. One by one by one. I served in Bosnia in 1998 with the Polish uh, brigade. They they were on probation to join NATO. The Czechs were on probation. The Slovaks were on probation to join NATO. These former Warsaw Pact guys. In the American multinational division north, we had a brigade of Russians in the NATO brigade. And they didn't like it a whole lot. They didn't like taking orders from the U.S. Army, but uh, they were the ones who asked to be part of the mission. And we felt that them being part of the mission showed that enemies, former enemies, could become friends, the whole thing. But the Russians didn't like it. I know because I lived with them for a couple of months. And so Bill Clinton wasn't exactly the most gracious of victors in, in the aftermath of the Cold War. Maybe he wasn't the guy to do that anyway. Maybe George H.W. Bush should have been the guy to do that, but he didn't. Bill Clinton was the president for eight years, and Vladimir Putin didn't like the way Bill Clinton treated Russia. And then, of course, you all remember Y2K. Because now Vladimir Putin has come through the ranks of politics in the city of Leningrad. He's now Boris Yeltsin's vice president. And on December 31st, 1999, Boris Yeltsin writes the letter. He's going to resign uh, because of poor health. Uh, and, he's going, and he needs more time to, to, uh, to uh, pursue his hobby of drinking. So he resigns. We wake up on January 1st, the year 2000, and there's a new leader in Russia. And his name is Vladimir Putin. And nobody knows anything about him. <clears throat> He was there to restore the KGB's place, now the FSB, in, in Russian life, and he's done it. So, it. so here's the other thing you need to know about Vladimir Putin. When he took over, Russia was about to cease being a country. By around 2045, uh, people were not going to be having Russians anymore. 
their birth rate was plummeting. He reversed that in one of the most remarkable demographic turnarounds in recorded history. Vladimir Putin, through bonuses and through other policies, reversed the Russian birth rate decline. He, he literally saved a language and a culture because they, they were eating their own tail. No one's saving the Germans. The Germans are going to be taught in German as a language is going to be uh, in libraries. But Putin saved the Russians. And he thought, well, this is the way it is. This is our version of democracy, where they think they're voting, and I think, and we act like we count them. But I am the president, and I'm going to follow the Constitution. There's a term limit. I'm going to step down for a couple of years. My vice president, this guy Medvedev, he's going to become president for a couple of years, and then I'll run again. And then I'll change the Constitution. Well, all is well, right? We can live with that because it's not our country. It's their version of democracy. And after all, the guy's very popular. Even if they really did count the votes, Putin would be winning. Sure, he kills a journalist every, every once in a while, three, four, five times a week. Well, that's his business, right? Well, along comes this new guy, Barack Obama, in 2008. He's now the president of the United States. And his former foe is now his secretary of state, Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton, as the secretary of state of the United States, not the head of the CIA uh, or, or the NSA, as the head of, of, of the U.S. Department of State, Hillary Clinton has a policy to actively support anybody running against Vladimir Putin. So she makes it personal with Putin. You don't know this, do you? You thought maybe the CIA does this kind of stuff. No, no. The State Department did it. The United, the chief diplomatic representative of the U.S. government had a policy to, uh, to support anybody who would unseat Vladimir Putin. Um, more on this in just a second. If you're wondering who the GRU are, I'm telling you uh, why they executed this mission and why Putin was motivated to do this. Uh, so the, uh, the, uh, the iceberg's tip has been seen. We'll be back right after this. Stark Secret Place. Brian Suits in here until midnight. KFI. AM 640, more stimulating talk. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. It is the dark secret place. Next hour, the the great NATO controversy of 2018, which actually goes back to 2014. And if you know anything, it goes back to 2006. But what is the purpose of NATO? And is it possible to have delinquent NATO payments? Uh, that and more, and a super duper secret North Korean enrichment facility uh, finally revealed. Is as it turns out, they don't really intend to denuclearize. We'll uh, so getting back to the GRU and the indictments from uh, the Department of Justice uh, on Friday and the uh, the whole schmear. I know this seems far fetched, but there's something that you need to just keep in mind and internalize that what we used to think was Soviet behavior. Uh, the reflexive lying and denying. We didn't shoot that 747 down. There was no nuclear release at Chernobyl. We don't even, there's not even a place called Chernobyl. What do you mean? Um, the, then the eventual coming around to admitting that maybe something went wrong. And then the full-throated, well, okay, but it's none of your business. That wasn't Soviet behavior. That was Russian behavior. That goes back to the Tsar times. It, it, it's currently exhibited as we speak. That wasn't our Novichok. We didn't poison that, that, that guy and his daughter. Um, we didn't put polonium in that guy's tea. <laughs> okay, no one else developed Novichok. You you developed it to do an end around the chemical weapons ban because there was nothing that could have detected it. No one else has that. That's that's that is the Russian playbook. So so just like in the eighties when people mocked Reagan, just like two thousand twelve when Obama mocked Romney. Believe it or not, and I know you're saying, but what's in it for him? Vladimir Putin dislikes the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union. He dislikes the people who did it, which is us. He dislikes the existence of NATO. Why does NATO exist? I mean, after all, the Warsaw Pact uh, doesn't exist anymore, right? We'll get into that next hour, why NATO exists. Why are you up against the Russian border? Why is Poland in NATO? Uh, What are you guys, invading? He knows we're not invading. He knows NATO's not going to invade Russia. But the constant bluster is an old uh, Russian tactic. So... His mission was don't was prevent that woman from being elected. And if she didn't assist him through incompetence and arrogance um, so actively, she probably would have won. But her campaign was run so badly that you have to ask, maybe she was in on it. And what's my other uh, assumption here? I assume you all know that Trump was the most surprised guy in America when he won. Right. You all know that. Right. I, I know that there was a path, but he didn't really believe he was, was going to 
Uh, he was going to win, but he won. Uh, and, and who was the most shocked person? It was Hillary. She didn't even give her own concession speech that night. How could she be shocked? So just to remind you all, go back to July of 2016, listen to my shows. When those emails were released by whoever, when Debbie Wasserman Schultz emails were uh, released before the Democratic National Convention, and they showed conclusively that the insiders were conspiring to prevent Bernie from taking one more uh, vote away from Hillary during the primary process and, and, and that he should step down and they should do whatever they can to shut him up at the convention. We need to get on with it and turn all the Democrats on to Hillary. As it turns out, he was sucking the life out of her campaign because all the young people uh, loved his promises of, of uh, rainbow-powered love machines and unicorn factories and strawberry-scented welfare checks and the whole thing. They bought that crap. Free college. Oh, yeah. Um, and so uh, the, the Democrats couldn't get their own ducks in a row. Then, all, then it, as it turns out, this other planet's orbit intersects with them, and they hit a gold mine. They're trying to plant disinformation via Facebook. They're doing all these things actively, so-called active measures, because the Russians understand how the American elections work. They understand that it doesn't come down to Yolo County, California, whether or not Hillary wins California. She's going to win. It comes down to counties in Ohio. And with Facebook, the Russians understood way better than any political party in America did that you can micro-target voters on the fence. And they did that with fake news about, uh, about child trafficking at uh, pizzerias and things like that. But it would not have worked if Hillary's campaign had been so uh, arrogant and incompetent. And then those emails get released. And what happened? The chairman of the DNC had to resign. Debbie Wasserman Schultz had to resign before the convention. The game was afoot. It was on at that point. If, if no one else could figure out what was going on, that a foreign intelligence service had hacked the emails uh, intentionally and released them at that time, then, uh, well, then they're either really naive or possibly they're in government. But ultimately, Obama knew this was going on, and he did nothing. Hillary's pissed at that. It, it, there, the terminology I used in 2016 was act of war, because if a foreign intelligence service begins interfering with domestic American politics, I consider it an act of war and a, a direct challenge to the Constitution of the United States, the ultimate authority here. But like I say, if you're wondering why did Putin hate Hillary so much, it's because her State Department made it a mission. And they, it wasn't a secret mission. The State Department had employees, had Americans in Russia actively aiding and assisting and funding opponents of Vladimir Putin on his soil in his country. So just know that. And the fact that the United States could not see this coming, that he would see that, that uh, as Winston Churchill said, democracies are the worst form of government unless you compare them to all, all other things. Okay? We, we love living in democracies, don't we? But man, are they fragile. And they're more fragile today than they were 50 years ago, when you actually put a mark on a piece of paper and put it in a box. So they, they were not interfering with election machines, with voting machines, or with boxes of votes. But they were influencing the election, and there's, there's not a bigger information operations win in, in American uh, political history than when the Russians released Debbie Wasserman Schultz emails. And all those Bernie voters were able to see that the game was fixed. The thumb was on the scale. It was, the match was fixed. And possibly Bernie was even in on it. And then where did they go on November 8, 2018? They didn't go vote because they were not going to vote for Hillary, and they sure weren't going to vote for Trump. I bet you more of Bernie's people voted for Trump than voted for Hillary. So mission accomplished. Um, that ha now, was there American collusion or interference? Here, here's the thing. There didn't have to be. I'm not holding my breath thinking there was. There didn't have to be. The last guy in America who thought he would be president was Donald Trump. The Russians didn't have to give them any information because they simply released it under the guise of WikiLeaks and all that. If you still think that Julian Assange and WikiLeaks are some great noble uh, whistleblower, then again, you got to wake up. You have to wake the hell up on this because the GRU, um, they succeeded. They won. They just wrote the book on how to interfere with the most powerful democracy. In fact, the most powerful country uh, on earth, how to affect their election, how to even just influence it. 
And if Hillary had not run such an incompetent campaign, or again, remember her slogan was, vote for me or go F yourself. If she hadn't done that, she probably would have won, and this would be a rumor, just a rumor. But she didn't win. There's a reason. She's part of the reason. She should take ownership of that, by the way. Uh, but the other part is, yeah, there's a hostile country called Russia. Um, their muscle memory goes back. It goes way back. And uh, they flexed it. They, uh, they won that round. We'll uh, be back next hour. What in the heck is NATO? And uh, the Israelis are bombing Gaza. Why is that? That our, uh, Hour number two of the Dark Secret Place right after this KFI AM 640 more stimulating talk. KFI AM 640 more stimulating talk. It is the Dark Secret Place hour number two. Brian sits in here with your weekly weekly look at the world melting down. And uh, later on this hour, we'll get into the uh, real reason that NATO exists. Uh, you're, you're hearing phrases like delinquent payments and paying their fair share uh, and et cetera. So we'll, we'll get into what exactly NATO is and, and who has to pay what um, <clears throat> in a little bit. Also, uh, with a little bit of looking, as it turns out, you can discover where North Korea has been secretly enriching uranium all this time. And uh, they were not about to admit where it was. And it's just further proof that, as it turns out, they have no intention of denuclearizing anything. Uh, we'll get to that. But uh, first of all, earlier today, um, it, uh, sundown on uh, Shabbat, you know, uh, uh, Sabbath Shabbat begins at sundown Friday in Israel, and it ends at sundown uh, around sundown Saturday. What what happened yesterday was that a group of Palestinian infiltrators, and keep in mind, <clears throat> in Gaza, Hamas, a terrorist organization, um, actually is the government. And they have been trying to uh, become relevant in worldwide media for the past four months because they've noticed that uh, they, they've lost relevance, specifically in the Arab world, uh, because between the Syrian civil war uh, and demonstrations in Iran, where Iranians are wondering, why are we paying Hamas uh, money that could be going towards uh, our, our day, literally, literally our daily bread here in Iran? So Hamas have been looking for other sources of revenue, specifically from their traditional European sources. And in order to do that, you have to first, by the way, understand that Hamas makes nothing. They've been, uh, the Israelis got out of Gaza 10 years ago. Um, Hamas took over. They are not a government in any actual rational, productive sense. Uh, Gaza makes nothing. The only product that they make are corpses, as you've heard me say, ad infinitum. Uh, they, uh, they produce corpses of young people, but they're only worth, uh, worthwhile if they're photographed and put on the front page of a European newspaper. So they've been trying a couple different things these last few months. Uh, you, you return, I mean, probably you, you remember the, uh, the return movement, uh, return with honor uh, two months ago, where they were rushing the Israeli border. And keep in mind that the, the uh, Gaza-Israeli border is a officially international border. Gaza is not a uh, occupied Israeli zone like the West Bank. The West Bank is, uh, is run... Uh, by Fatah and the Palestinian Authority, uh, and it is patrolled by the Israeli Defense Forces, Israeli police, as well as Palestinian police, um, primarily Palestinian police. But Gaza is 100% Palestinian, so it's treated like a sovereign country. So what we saw a month and a half ago was when a bunch of uh, military-age men start charging the Israeli border um, and, and pulling down barbed wire and bulldozing berms and all that— the Israelis treat it like what it is. It's an invasion. And so they used live ammunition like you would if you were being invaded. Uh, and a bunch of Palestinian men were killed, military age. And the uh, Hamas security forces admitted that like 35 of the 40 dead were actually employees of the uh, Hamas military wing. And so <clears throat> the uh, immediate uh, effect of this was that Hamas had to pay death benefits to 30 plus families. Like immediately they had to pay these death benefits at the funerals, which happened uh, the day of an individual's death in, in the Muslim world. Well, because Hamas missed a bunch of payments, 
the second, third, and fourth days, participation began to dwindle. So they had to come up with a different tactic because men and young men were not willing to go face Israeli bullets if their families were, were not going to be paid a death benefit uh, if they were killed. So Hamas has gone back to the tried and uh, tried and true tactic of shooting homemade, unguided rockets at Israel. So here's what happened 24 hours ago. Um, a group of terrorists tried to infiltrate Israel when they were challenged by the Israeli Defense Forces. One of them threw a grenade and wounded an Israeli officer. So the Israelis immediately retaliated with air power. F-16s dropped bombs on previously identified uh, Hamas tunnels, some of their infiltration tunnels that go from Gaza into the uh, e Egyptian-controlled Sinai, or suspected tunnels that go into Israel, and most importantly, some of the underground factories where the uh, uh, engineers make these homemade rockets out of pipe. Uh, they make stabilizing fins, and I'm doing air fingers when I say that. So the Israelis mowed the lawn, basically, and, and took care of a couple, uh, a couple of these places. Uh, so what happened today was that Hamas got together uh, over the past 24 hours between 90 and 100 rockets, and they began firing them in salvos towards uh, settlements in southern Israel uh, because Hamas knows that the Israeli Iron Dome system is, has to be reloaded. And, and unless the Israelis have 10 launchers uh, within range of where they're shooting rockets, um, then they have to reload. If they don't have 10, then they, they have to reload. So what Hamas does is a pretty basic tactic. They overwhelm the Iron Dome system, which has a 10-missile launcher. And so what Hamas does is they fire 11 missiles. So they fire 19 or 20, and they know that some will get through. The Iron Dome system actually um, it, it, it tracks the ballistic track, the path, of a incoming rocket or mortar round, and it predicts where that weapon's going to hit, the rocket or the mortar is going to hit. If it's going to hit an uninhabited area, it does not intercept it. If it does uh, look like it's going to hit a built-up or inhabited area, then it will uh, intercept that mortar or rocket. Well, so that's what happened today, but the uh, but Hamas fired more uh, <clears throat> more rockets than than uh, the IDF had Iron Dome uh, interceptor missiles. So uh, what happened was they hit a uh, synagogue, and the synagogue was filled with uh, devout uh, Jewish men still praying because it, there was still an hour to go in uh, Shabbat. Uh, and so this is a one-in-a-million shot. This was a total lottery shot. But they hit a synagogue. Uh, they hit some streets. They wounded women and children. And so the Israelis, who are always, by the way, the Israeli Air Force is always prepared for a retaliatory strike. The Israelis launched in about a 20-minute period. They launched the largest retaliatory strike since 2014. They immediately closed airspace in southern Israel, so you knew something was up. Uh, and around 9 or 10 a.m. Our, uh, our time here on the West Coast, they began hitting targets uh, in Gaza, and they have continued through right now. It's sun up in Israel, uh, and Hamas are, are just counting uh, their, their casualties and their destroyed facilities. One guy was driving a moped in Gaza, and he actually captured the impact of a uh, Israeli uh, F-16 dropped uh, JDAM bomb. This is this is the sound of a thousand pound bomb as a guy is uh, rolling down a wide, broad street on his moped. This uh, Israeli bomb hits at his uh, like eleven o'clock on his left as he's on his moped in uh, this. In this little uh, mobile mobile uh, car phone cellular car phone video. Ouch! So you hear glass and everything falling there. So anyway, that's that is that's what it sounds like if you're within 200 meters of a bomb. Uh, and luckily for this guy, he wasn't in a building. Uh, he was blown off his moped. Glass is falling, the whole thing. Anyway, this is continuing uh, through today, and it doesn't look like the Israelis are going to slow up on this one because they're moving ground troops uh, for other contingencies throughout Israel. So 
We'll uh, catch up on this uh, tomorrow. All right, when we come back, what really is the role of NATO? Uh, Brian sits in here until midnight. It's the Dark Secret Place, KFI, AM640, more stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. Let's have a heart-to-heart talk about NATO here. It's the uh, dark secret place. Brian suits in here until midnight. And uh, President Trump has gone to his second uh, NATO summit. Uh, They happen annually. Uh, Last year, he probably didn't have, I don't think, a real good grasp on what exactly NATO is. And I don't know that it was that much better this year. But uh, my bottom line up front on this is, that American presidents have been asking the Europeans to pay their fair share, but without ever really uh, giving a firm number on what that is. Robert Gates, who was George Bush's, George W. Bush's last Secretary of Defense, and then uh, Obama retained him because he he was, frankly, uh, an excellent administrator of both the the CIA and uh, the Pentagon. Uh, it was Bob Gates who f- first floated the 2% of your GDP, of your gross domestic product, going towards the military. Um, he did not, not expressed as a percentage of your country's budget, but a percentage of your country's GDP. And all the NATO nations agreed when he, when he first said it uh, around 2006. Uh, they, they revisited that number. Um, George W. Bush was not really pushing the Europeans, even though the Afghan war was showing some of the the weak spots in in European defense spending. Uh, President Obama um, uh, in 2014 thought that he had gotten the Europeans to finally turn the corner and finally start ponying up a little more for the defense of Europe with the understanding being like, you know, I get it. You're participating in Afghanistan. We're basically footing the bill for that. But when it comes to defense of Europe, uh, you guys got to pony up for that. So the former Secretary of General for NATO, Anders Fogh Rasmussen, in 2014 said this. President Obama heard what he wanted to hear, a pledge by NATO members to carry more of their defense burden, until now borne mostly by the United States. We recognize that we need to invest additional effort and money. So today, the alliance made a pledge on defense investment. Well, that ought to do it, right? That sounds good. Um, well, it, it didn't do it. It did not actually translate into increased defense budgets. Uh, in fact, the uh, budgets in the uh, European uh, nations and Canada, basically non-American NATO nations, the budgets continued to decrease no matter what you read in Daily Beast or Huffington Post or Slate, the Europeans were not, in real terms, increasing their defense spending. Uh, What they were doing was uh, cutting programs, cutting crucial programs, which did not make them a better NATO ally. Um, So when uh, Trump called out Germany for relying, or in his words, relying on German gas uh, while uh, also relying on America to protect Germany from Russia, it wasn't very diplomatic, and it made me squirm. I would have done it behind closed doors. But I cannot argue with results, and in this case, Trump got results. And uh, when he left, he gave a parting press conference, and he did his victory lap about the uh, the budget. For years, presidents have been coming to these meetings and uh, talked about the expense, the tremendous expense for the United States. And Uh, Tremendous progress has been made. Everyone's agreed to substantially up their commitment. Okay. So that's all very well and good. Uh, When when Trump was talking about delinquent NATO payments, uh, there literally is no such thing. There's not an annual, uh, you know, green uh, uh, country club green fee for NATO. There's no such thing as delinquent payments. Uh, If they were short-arming their budget, underpaying or whatever— there's really nothing you can do about that except tell them that they'll be much better partners if they increase their budget now going forward, which now, uh, uh, theoretically, uh, they've had their come-to-Jesus meeting with Trump, and, and they're going to do that. But this continues the idea here in the West, by the West, I mean in the United States, um, that NATO is a defense alliance. It's a alliance of like-minded Western democracies that mutually 
uh, will come to each other's aid. And that, that is what it was conceived as in 1949, and that's what it is today, a mutual defense pact. And on the surface, that's what NATO is. But like I was telling Bill Handel earlier this week, um, for those of you who are, who are not aware, and I, I don't blame you because you're not taught this in American high schools, in, in American universities, we don't say what I'm about to tell you out loud. Um, you're not taught it. Uh, our elected officials don't say this out loud. Uh, Congress and the Senate don't say it out loud. No one says it out loud because it makes the Europeans uncomfortable. But the Europeans know exactly what NATO is. And to know exactly what NATO is, you must know about how NATO was formed and when it was formed. NATO was formed in the aftermath of World War II in the, when the United States emerged, not just uh, victorious, leading the Allies, but as literally the world's only mega power, the sole possessor of nuclear weapons, and the only country besides Canada that really had not been touched by World War II. So what was NATO? Well, NATO was an American concept, and it was conceived by men who fought in World War I and then led in World War II. So these are men who saw Germany savage Europe twice in 21 years. And NATO was a way for the United States to sit on Europe with a occupying military force called mutual defense and make sure that the Europeans didn't go to war. I'll tell you more about this right after. You can go ahead and think NATO is a mutual defense treaty. I'll tell you a little more when we come back about what NATO really is. It's a dark secret place. Brian Suits in here until midnight. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. It is a dark secret place. Brian Suits in here until Midnight, getting back to uh, NATO, the president went from the uh, the two-day NATO summit to uh, London to meet with Prime Minister Theresa May. Now he's in Scotland. He'll be uh, meeting Vladimir Putin on Monday in Helsinki, as uh, Putin undoubtedly will come, come off a, a very successful uh, World Cup uh, hosted by Russia. And uh, one of one of Putin's unstated goals, besides destabilizing the United States, is payback for the uh, destruction of the Soviet Union or the collapse of the Soviet Union. One of his unstated goals is to uh, dissolve NATO, get NATO to collapse from within. And uh, he's got to be very happy about a president of the United States talking about why are we doing this? What are we in this for? The whole thing. Um, and so this uh, has lent me uh, to uh, explain what NATO is to the vast majority of people who continue to believe that from day one in 1949 uh, that uh, NATO is a mutual defense pact uh, amongst European nations to stare down the Russians. So keep in mind NATO predates the Warsaw Pact. The, uh, the, the, there was a de facto Warsaw Pact. I mean, the Russians were occupying all of Eastern Europe, not, not just East Germany, the German occupation zone, but the uh, Russians were occupying uh, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Bulgaria, uh, uh, Estonia, Latvia. You know, the, the entire Eastern Europe uh, was behind the Iron Curtain was a, a de facto a Russian defense zone, occupied zone, and they made it a formality by calling it the Warsaw Pact. But fact of the matter is NATO existed before the Warsaw Pact. The purpose for NATO, as I said in the last break, um, was it's an American invention as a way for the United States to militarily occupy all of Western Europe without having troops all over the place by effectively get, having the Europeans occupy themselves. Because of NATO's command structure, no member nation uh, either the original members or the full uh, 28 besides the U.S. can go to war without American assistance, participation, or even planning and approval. Uh, in other words, because of the NATO command structure, Portugal cannot go to war with Italy. Italy can't attack Belgium. Belgium can't attack Holland. Uh, none of the traditional rivalries, either by ethnicity, nationality, language, or geography, um, the, all the things that have led to centuries of warfare in Europe, culminating in the last centuries, World War I and World War II, none of those factors 
uh, matter in Western Europe because they cannot mobilize their own military, their own militaries, I should say, without American approval and assistance. That was, that's what the NATO command structure is. There is always an American in command of NATO. The SACUR, the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, is always an American. Uh, that was a given when NATO was formed um, because it was an American invention. And so Europe has now had 70 years of unbroken peace. And I'm not counting the Balkans on, on this, on the Southern Europe. But Western Europe has, has now had the longest period of sustained peace in 1,500 years of European history. So if you're wondering whether NATO is effective, um, then I would, have to, I would have to ask, well, what do you think it does? And if the answer is, well, deter the Soviet Union, well, sure, it did its job. There's no more Soviet Union. And a lot of people in 1991, including Putin um, <clears throat> and other Russian politicians, said, why does NATO still exist? There's no more Warsaw Pact. In fact, these guys are clamoring to join NATO. Why, do, why does NATO even exist? We're, we're no longer a threat to invade Western Europe. Not that we ever were, but we're just not anymore. So why does NATO exist? And there were even a lot of Americans um, who, uh, who, who asked that openly. Why are we sustaining 500,000 American troops in Western Europe, uh, families uh, over there for years? The expense of those bases is, uh, is staggering. Why do we maintain a membership in NATO? Why doesn't NATO break up? Even Bill Clinton was explained what NATO is by his chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, John Shalakishvili, um, who, uh, who was a, a Ukrainian-Georgian. Um, guy spoke seven languages. He was a former commander of NATO. He was one of the best commanders of NATO we ever had, uh, a, uh, a West Pointer who could speak Italian, speak German, speak French. Shalakishvili was extraordinary. And one of the things Shalakishvili did was he explained to Clinton the real purpose of NATO. That's the reason— when Clinton left office in 19, uh, pardon me, in 2000, that NATO was, was still around. I did a NATO mission in Bosnia, and I was someone who grew up thinking exactly what we were told, that NATO, uh, NATO's purpose was as a mutual defense treaty uh, so that Europe would, uh, would always be able to mutually fight against an invader. Well, when we were fresh out of invaders, why did NATO exist? Well, that's like I say, the Europeans don't like saying this out loud because it makes it feel like uh, it's our playground and we're letting them play there. But the fact of the matter is that's kind of what Europe is now. The United States decided after World War II that after two wars in 21 years, we were not going to sentence our grandkids to fighting a third war in Europe. Uh, because in 1948, 40, 47, 48, uh, the, the French had been savaged, had been destroyed by the Germans, the English as well. And uh, no one had successfully been able to put away uh, their animus towards the Germans, nor, nor should they have. It's totally understandable, right? But in, after World War I, that led to one of the most harsh peace treaties of all time, the Treaty of Versailles. And if you know anything about World War I, then you know that the Treaty, treaty of Versailles practically, uh, practically predicted World War II, it, as a peace treaty, it was so punitive uh, and so crippling that the, uh, the Germans could not uh, feel uh, except could not feel anything but set upon by the victorious uh, uh, the, uh, Western powers, uh, even though they felt like they had not been defeated on the battlefield. So after World War II, as I say, George Marshall uh, and other senior American leaders, including FDR, said we cannot have a situation like World War I again. Now we have to rebuild Europe. We can't just come back to North America and throw the League of Nations at somebody but then not join it. We have to have a United Nations. America has to be the bulwark, the central column of the United Nations. We have to be engaged. We have to rebuild Europe. And then, by the way, we have to bring all the Europeans into our corral, and only we will have the key. So that's what NATO is, no matter what you think. Um, that it's a mutual defense pact. It was very convenient in 1949 that, that NATO existed, everyone joined, and we were able to say, oh, my God, look over there. Look at that boogeyman. Look at the Russians. Well, the Russians ceased to exist as a, a Soviet Union army in 1991, so why does NATO still exist? Because that's not the purpose of NATO. The purpose of NATO was never just to stare down the Soviet Union. The purpose of NATO is to keep the Germans and the French in the same room 
uh, on the same caliber in the same exercises, acting like allies, so that the same old tensions that took Europeans to war for 1,500 years don't bubble up again. Because mark my words, if you don't think the United States leaving Europe would not lead to, within 50 years, war in Europe, then you don't know anything about European history. We'll be back right after this. It is the Dark Secret Place. Brian sits in here one more time. KFI, AM640, more stimulating talk. Michael should pay with the news. KFI AM 640 more stimulating talk. It is the dark secret place. One last time, Brian suits in here. Then tomorrow night, eight o'clock for a super hyper local Sunday. Um, well, researchers, and this is uh, open source researchers, OSINT, open source intelligence, uh, have discovered a uh, unacknowledged uh, in, uh, uranium enrichment facility in Kangsan. North Korea. Now, does the U.S. government know about it? I, I assume the U.S. government knows about this. But it was uh, discovered by uh, people using uh, high-resolution, commercially available satellite photos. And what it shows is uh, because in, in, the, in the world of uh, gas centrifuge uh, uranium enrichment, form kind of follows function. Uh, in other words, you're not going to have a high-rise. You're not going to have a 30-story building filled with centrifuges. It just doesn't work like that. Cascading gas centrifuges have to be in an array, in, in long rows of arrays, because that's the most efficient way to use them. This is what, what we know from doing it ourselves uh, and the way everyone else does it. Uh, this is how the Iranians do it uh, with their, their homemade centrifuges as well as uh, the uh, commercially available ones. And the North Koreans, who originally purchased centrifuges from the Iranians and the Pakistanis and then reverse engineered them. Um, they didn't reinvent the wheel on this. They purchased centrifuges from countries that told them how to engineer the building uh, where they would be. And so the North Koreans did not, uh, didn't question their instructions. They, they built several facilities that are really clearly enrichment facilities because they look like uh, you could pick them up and put them in Pakistan or you could pick them up and put them in Iran, or for that matter, you could pick them up and put them in Hanford, Washington. Uh, like I say, form follows function. If you're going to have an assembly line, you know, you, you don't make the building uh, circular, you know, if, if you know what I'm saying. So, so anyway, with, with a high degree of confidence, it's pretty clear that the North Koreans uh, have and, and have had a, a parallel development program. One, uh, a little more obvious, uh, a little less hidden, one that the United States can point to and say, ah, we see your uh, rocket engine test facility. We see your presumed production facility for missiles. We see your uh, nuclear enrichment facility at the Yongbyon uh, reactor, because that's been there for 30 years. But what the North Koreans have done is, is have a, a complete archipelago of parallel development throughout the country, uh, both underground as well as above ground. And this does not exactly lead one to the conclusion that North Korea is really, truly uh, in, a, in a place where they are being genuine when they say they want to denuclearize. Because again, just for the record, they have not said they want to denuclearize. They're, when they say denuclearize, uh, they mean reduce the risk of nuclear war, which, by the way, you can do without getting rid of your nuclear weapons, which is the North Koreans' entire point. Um, which is, look, you Americans, you have nuclear weapons. You didn't get rid of them when the Soviet Union invented their own A-bombs and H-bombs. You guys didn't get rid of them. You just agreed to have an equal amount uh, to serve as a deterrent. And uh, So the North Koreans have been saying all along, why aren't you offering us the same deal that you offered the Soviets? But we're not, uh, we're, we're, for some reason, we're not willing to hear that. We keep saying things like denuclearize. Well, the North Koreans are pretty clearly prepared to maintain a uh, under-the-radar secret program. Their, their program, believe it or not, their program up to this point has not been um, th that secret. I mean, after all, the North Koreans understood, you know, the first time we successfully test an A-bomb, then the jig is up. The world knows that we have it. But then again, that's kind of the point of testing it is so that the world knows, or rather George W. Bush knows that we have it. He named us onto the axis of evil. So the faster we can get an A-bomb, uh, the faster we go on to his do not attack list. So the, the North Koreans 
uh, intentionally. You know, they didn't try to mask in any way, shape, or form their their first A bomb test in 2005. And then, of course, last year, test number six was the largest uh, uh, that they've ever done, and it was an H bomb. And they couldn't hide it. They didn't try to hide it. And in fact, uh, part of the point of doing it uh, was so that before there were any serious negotiations, we would know that they had a working H-bomb. Um, and so will the North Koreans uh, fit into the box that the Trump administration wants? Uh, you remember this time last week, Secretary of State Pompeo was basically being bum-rushed out of North Korea. The North Koreans were apparently mocking him. Uh, they had absolutely no idea what he was talking about. Their, their press release was 180 degrees off of Pompeo's. The North Koreans said, that, uh, that the Americans were using gangster-like language uh, and, and all this, while Pompeo said, we had great substantial talks and the whole thing. There's Right now, there's another delegation that got to North Korea uh, in, uh, on the 12th, uh, two days ago, and, and they're, they're continuing negotiations with the North Koreans. But where, like I've told you, the way this works out uh, within a year uh, is that the, uh, the President Trump pulls back on what he was saying. He denies he ever said denuclearize. Um, and we wind up agreeing that North Korea will have a set amount of nuclear weapons and they will r- retain them as a deterrent against Yankee aggression. And in return, we will pledge to not be the first to attack them uh, and all that. Um, but the North Koreans, they are not giving up the nuclear program. In fact, they're building new, fa- new facilities. We know it. Um, and will they be confronted about it? Well, if they are, they're just going to say, well, yeah, wouldn't you guys do this? All right. Uh, thanks to uh, Hector and Michael Chappé. I'll be back tomorrow night, 8 o'clock for Super April Logo Sunday. This is Dark Secret Place for the for Bastille Day, the 14th of July, 2018. KFI AM640, more stimulating talk.